Welcome to the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 29th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, the COVID-19 crisis is far from over in the United States, but both here and around the world, areas are increasingly talking about opening up their economies, reducing the restrictions they've put in place, and several governments have already made moves to do that. I wonder if we could talk today about what this is going to look like. For starters, do we have any clues from areas that are already opening about what's going to happen? I think we have some clues, although they're very limited because a number of the areas that are opened or never closed also are the ones with limited testing and limited reporting. So there's only so much we can tell. It does appear that China, which has instituted the very strongest quarantine and isolation measures, has dramatically reduced the transmission of disease. But they've done that by taking, as I said, extreme measures. Their philosophy is that most transmission is occurring in the household, and they're very happy to take people out of their homes and put them into isolation elsewhere to limit household transmission. And that's a step that most other countries haven't yet taken. But the reopening has been gradual in China, and we'll see what happens. Eric and Steve, I mean, I think that some of the lessons that I think are really important are countries that have aggressively pursued testing, case finding, and appropriate quarantine or social distancing or decreasing exposure from those who are actively infected as a fundamental tool to stopping transmission. And I think South Korea, Singapore, different countries, New Zealand, have tried different techniques along these lines that are somewhat old-fashioned in that they're basic public health tools. But rather than the traditional shoe leather epidemiology, molecular tools are added to the toolbox to be able to identify those who are actively infected, particularly those who are actively infected and not particularly ill, because they may turn out to be very important vectors of transmission. And by containing, controlling, stopping ongoing transmission, then one has a path to opening up or decreasing social distancing, which obviously allows the economies to open. So I think there's a lot to be learned from these other communities or other natural experiments. And as Eric said, in China, where there was massive transmission going on in Wuhan and surrounding areas, very aggressive social distancing or control methods had the effect that they wanted, although at a significant cost in terms of the energy required to implement those control methods. I think here in the United States, the issues will emerge as different states apply different approaches, and those approaches will be impacted by the background transmission going on at the time that different policies are enacted and it'll be critically important that they are carefully evaluated to understand the consequences. Lindsay, I'd add, of course, that these are very early times, and it's very difficult to characterize anything as a success until we see what happens over the next several weeks to months. Absolutely, Eric. I mean, what we forget, since all of our lives have been consumed by COVID-19, society has been fundamentally changed. Many are at home, not able to go out, it seems like this has been going on for eternity, but we've actually been only aggressively dealing with COVID-19 in the U.S. for one to two months. 
even though it feels like an eternity. So I think you're absolutely right that we still have so much more to learn about the impact of different maneuvers on subsequent infection. A cornerstone of that process, in my view, is testing. Because without testing, we don't actually know what's going on, especially in the context of what I believe are the majority of infections may be minimally or asymptomatic and therefore difficult to diagnose without testing and therefore to properly contact trace, which is, I think, a cornerstone of controlling transmission, especially for an easily transmissible respiratory virus, which I think this virus is behaving as. What happens in places where transmission has been reduced, but then there's another introduction of the disease, which may have happened in Singapore, for example? It's a really good point. What's happened in Singapore already is clearly something that can happen anywhere. And that's because the fundamental biology of the disease hasn't changed. This is still a highly transmissible respiratory virus, as Lindsay has said. We don't have specific measures to stop it. We don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have treatments which decrease transmission. And without those, nothing is going to change and we remain at risk. So it would be surprising if we don't see recurrent outbreaks like what's occurring in Singapore now. Now, I think it's important to say that as Lindsay had mentioned, Singapore is one of the countries that did a terrific job of limiting the initial introduction. But they're going to have to keep on doing that, at least in the setting that we have right now. And Steve, I mean, I think that what you point out is this is not a static process. Once we have a solution, we're done. It's a dynamic process because as long as there is significant transmission of this virus in different parts of the world, which is currently the case, then the likelihood of individuals who may be incubating or with low-level symptomatic infection going to a community that doesn't have transmission and introducing it is quite high. Therefore, as Eric just said, you can't block transmission and say you're done. Reintroduction is highly likely, and there are data we need to understand the risk of reintroduction, including how much of a given population has already been infected, zero studies, and what are the implications of having been previously infected on the ability to get reinfected, either for clinical illness, where perhaps prior infection and immunity diminishes clinical illness, but maybe one can be transiently low-level infected and shed and transmit. So we need to understand the implications of those who have been infected and the implications on their ability to be reinfected, either for illness or for transmissibility. So there's knowledge that needs to be studied, gained, created, that can then guide more rational response. It's important to remember in that context that there has been a lot of focus on the possibility that people who have been infected and generated an immune response are unlikely to get infected again. And that, we hope, is true. But it's important to remember that the pool of people who've never been infected, the pool of still susceptible individuals is enormous. And that isn't going to change, even if we have testing to identify people who are potentially protected. Eric, I completely agree that the a number who have been infected to date in the world is probably a very, very small number compared to the 7 billion on the planet. 
But I do think that we need to understand the implications of immunity to then help develop a rational strategy for new control measures, because there might be different control measures for those who have been infected than those who haven't. And until those data are generated as to what prior immunity means, we don't know how to leverage that potential element in relaxing isolation or social distancing to be able to get our communities open again. Taking a step or two back, why are different countries and different parts of this country so differently affected right now? Well, I think there are a lot of things that contribute to that. Some of it is when did the first introductions occur in areas where there was a lot of international travel, particularly from highly affected areas, there was more disease earlier on, which may have led to larger outbreaks. In certain places, take New York City, there were likely to be many, many independent introductions. And the chances, therefore, of each of those introductions leading to large amounts of spread increased. So there's something about the initial introductions. There's something about the populations and how they live. People who live in congregate settings are much more likely to transmit within that setting as in nursing homes and prisons and such. And we've seen that repeatedly. And areas which are more densely populated are likely to have more transmission than areas that are less densely populated. This has been an inequitable distribution as well. People who live in poverty and therefore live in more crowded conditions are more likely to spread from one to another. People who have a lot of comorbid illnesses are likely to get more severely ill, and that has shown up quite clearly. And then there's some luck. If you got the disease early, you were less prepared than if you got the disease late. And I think some areas in particular Northern Italy was stricken very early in the outbreak, and therefore there was less preparedness than there was a few weeks later. I agree, Eric. I think that there's a chance event of somebody who is infectious coming to a given community to ignite the transmission. There might be biology there of certain individuals being super spreaders or more contagious, although that has to also be properly studied. And The environment being in close congregation, as Eric says, that facilitates transmission. Why does one cruise ship get infected and another not? And why is a cruise ship a particular environment where transmission can rapidly occur? And that is a unique circumstance that we've all witnessed, but it is the conditions that allow rapid transmission. And so it has to be introduced into a given state or city or community. And then the community has to have interpersonal dynamics that really facilitate the spread. And with this particular respiratory virus, it's been able to jump all those domains for efficient spread quite efficiently. Again, we have millions of cases in 16 weeks. This is not a hard to transmit pathogen. And those are cases that we know about. So it's likely substantially higher. Now, it isn't all just luck and the social circumstances in a place. As Lindsay alluded to earlier, some countries did a really amazing job of preventing spread early on by quickly identifying individuals who were infected and instituting control measures in places like South Korea and Taiwan. And Steve, you earlier had mentioned Singapore. Singapore is a place that also aggressively tested people and isolated those individuals who were sick and had lots of success. Of course, it remains an ongoing challenge, and 
the fact that there are more cases in Singapore right now is an illustration of the fact that it's not something you can just do once and say, we're done. And that there may be external factors that have not been defined yet, such as climate, humidity, seasonality, things that have been alluded to for other coronaviruses that may or may not be relevant for this coronavirus, and that will have to be studied going forward. It may be that when a virus initially comes into a completely seronaive population, it can transmit year-round because there are so many susceptibles. And then after there is some background immunity, then other environmental features may play a role in dampening transmission. We don't know, but there may well be environmental factors that may facilitate or retard transmission that hopefully we'll figure out over the months to come. So getting back to loosening restrictions, what can we expect to see happen when we do that? I think we can expect to see more transmission, but how much transmission is really going to depend on what steps were taken. And the appropriate steps are likely to vary from place to place, depending on how much disease is already present in the community. It's hard to know right now how much restriction there has to be. And it, as I said, there's not going to be any universal prescription as to what to do. I mean, I think that, at least in my view, the loosening of restrictions has to be linked to aggressive surveillance. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to know whether or not you're losing control or not until there's significant illness. Because I suspect that illness is not the primary uh, disease burden. There's a much greater number of individuals infected than those coming to the ICU and need to be intubated. And I worry that using how many are in the ICU and intubated is quite crude as a marker of disease burden. So I think that there are many factors that'll impact whether or not the virus takes off again with loosening of social restrictions. But I do hope that jurisdictions that do this do this with proper care so they develop the data to know if they made the right or wrong decision. And it wouldn't surprise me that when a community opens up, there can be micro outbreaks that shouldn't be a surprise but with proper surveillance can then be tamped down through routine control measures before they get out of control. So there is some degree that I think we as a community need to realize that loosening restrictions does not mean no further transmission, or that if there's further transmission, that's failure. Rather, there are procedures and public health infrastructure in place to detect it early so that the micro events can stay that way and not spread more broadly. I'd add that there are ways to limit the amount of damage. If it weren't for the fact that asymptomatic people transmitted it to people who became quite ill, we wouldn't really care about this virus at all. So there are jurisdictions which are, for example, maintaining social isolation, almost complete isolation for the most susceptible individuals or those who are most susceptible to severe disease in the population, um, like the elderly. And steps such as that might limit the amount of death and severe illness in the population. I think what we're looking at right now is a very heterogeneous set of actions being taken by governments, and it's hard to know which ones will work and which ones will be important yet. Eric, I agree, but they're conceptually different strategies. One strategy is we don't want there to be significant transmission in my community. Another strategy is I don't want those who can get most severely ill 
to get severely ill. Both are important, but they require a different level of and strategy for surveillance, case detection, and interdiction. And I think that this kind of thinking is going to not only occur at the national level, at the state level, at the city level, but also at the employer level. And I think all groups are going to have to think carefully about how do they approach the risk of transmission and the potential consequences to their workforce to really be able to minimize the associated illness. Are some of the measures that are being taken as restrictions are loosened being seen to be effective? Things like stationing a nurse at the entrance to a building who takes the temperature of the employees or the customers who come in, um, staying six feet apart in a retail establishment or at work. Are there lessons that we can take from the current essential businesses that have remained open? Have they been able to limit transmission? I think the entrance to that varies, that some essential businesses have been able to limit transmission. And some have not. And I would point out outbreaks that are occurring in nursing homes uh, that are full of essential employees, not just among the residents, but among the employees within there. Uh, the outbreaks in meat packing plants, for example. And you can draw individual lessons from many of those. But there is no simple answer from what we've seen. There are industries and businesses where Close personal contact is an integral part of what they do. I'm thinking of some healthcare like dentistry, uh, beauty salons. There are lots of businesses that are, it's very tough to figure out how to maintain some of the processes that you're talking about. Certainly PPE, to the extent that we can do it in those businesses, would be of some help, but we don't know exactly how much help there'll be. Trying to balance all of this is hard. You mentioned, for example, taking temperatures. We know that taking temperatures is very insensitive to disease. And in fact, as Lindsay already said, a lot of people are asymptomatically infected and those are missed entirely by symptom screening or by looking at people's temperatures. I mean, I think that the issue of what we can learn from essential businesses that have stayed open, they're not monomorphic in what they do and the nature of the social interaction. And the presumption is that the transmission is going on in the business. And it may well be that a lot of transmission goes on in the community, but I go to my work and then I can potentially transmit there, but not all transmission is necessarily in the place of employment. As Eric has already sort of indicated, certain environments are high risk for transmission. You know, and they're closed quartered environments and ships I highlight just as a prototypic example, but the conceptual issue associated with a ship can also be seen in certain workplaces where there's a lot of close contact and what you need is introduction of the virus. So different businesses will have different stressors on the transmission dynamic that has to be thought about. And symptom screening, I think, is important. Because if somebody is ill, it's probably not a good idea for them to be in the environment with others that they can transmit to. And whether it's coronavirus or flu or another respiratory virus, that's probably a good idea for them not to transmit. But in many of the major reports that have been published, at the time of hospital admission, upwards of half the admitted individuals with moderate to severe illness don't have fever. So that it may not be the most sensitive 
although it's useful in that those who have it probably shouldn't be transmitting to others, but it's not going to resolve the issue of who might be infected and shedding. So with all of that, do we know enough now to loosen restrictions? Well, it's going to happen with what we know now. So rather than praising it that way, I think we can think about what do we know to do it in the best possible way. And the answer to that is complicated. It's complicated by the individual circumstances of different places, and it's complicated by what we don't know. Clearly, for example, we'd be much better off opening up when there was more testing available. And in my own opinion, we didn't emphasize increasing testing capacity early enough in the outbreak. Nevertheless, as I said, opening is going to happen whether or not we have those tests. So it's important to think about how we deploy what we've got at the same time trying to increase capacity. I mean, I think that the issue of opening or loosening social restriction is also not monomorphic. It's not a yes, no light switch. It can be phased in, phased in based on priority of the social need for a given type of workforce, supply chain, food chain, healthcare worker, first responders. You know, there are a series of groups who have been working, but working understaffed. So there are ways to release restrictions on key groups and also release restrictions on groups where there's lower risk of transmission generate data, as Eric suggested, understanding who's already infected, who becomes infected, which means we have the testing available as a given, not as a limited resource. And then that can allow phased-in opening of elements of society that meet the urgent need to open society, but also allow us to do it systematically and learn which activities are higher risk than other activities and which responses to micro-outbreaks best contain them so they stay micro and can be extinguished. So Steve, I think it's really a dynamic process that will be staged rather than a light switch. The decision to open isn't a medical or public health decision. It's an economic decision and a social one, and those are critically important considerations. I think that as Lindsay is suggesting, the decision to reopen should be made in a way that's informed by what we know about the outbreak and how to control it. And the more that those issues are taken into account, the more likely this is to be successful. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.